The Old Testament reading is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. So I prophesied as I have commanded, and as I prophesied, suddenly there was a noise, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet a vast multitude. Then he said to me, Mortal, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you on your own soil. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jew were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? 
Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling you, calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jew who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up and quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus said, <coughs> Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Um, I don't know about you, but I have lots and lots of questions about both passages. There are so many questions to be asked. Um, and I wrote down hundreds of them, I think, as I was going through both of these passages and thinking about what do we need to know and how does this apply to us, Resurrection Church, in this time and in this place. And a lot of my initial questions are for Lazarus, like what on earth, <laughs> right? Or whatever he experienced for four days, I would love to know. And a lot of my focus was on Lazarus, Lazarus who dies, Lazarus who's brought back to life, and all the other people not brought back to life. So, and I just was, I just kept thinking about Lazarus. And he doesn't even get to speak. In the very next chapter, he is sitting with his family around a table. Well, not sitting, they're lounging. And they're talking and having conversation. And I desperately want to know, like, you know that is not a normal dinner conversation, right? So I have lots of questions for Lazarus. But then I was thinking maybe I should hone in these questions based on the series that we've been in. We started this series, The Signs of New Life, with the explosion of color, not just in the text, but in the sanctuary on Easter Sunday, when a woman stood in front of an empty tomb and she turned around and she saw a gardener of the new garden of the new creation. And then we started talking about how this resurrection power of Jesus is the primary focus for John. And how John is then going to talk about this new creation. And he does it by using seven signs and seven large discourses throughout his book. And so ultimately, when we really think about the context of John, not just the exciting bits of this particular story, but what is John himself doing? We realize this is not about Lazarus at all. This is all about who Jesus is and pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so we've been in this series where we have just taken each of these seven signs and we've looked at them individually and talking about like, what is it about these people who are involved or if it's a public or a private event, what is it that points to Jesus as the Messiah? 
And so we're going to do that with this one too, but we have to realize each of these seven signs are knit together and read together to get to the big explosion of who Jesus is, which is the whole second half of the gospel of John. Now, the context here is important, as context always is important. So I'm going to rewind just a little bit and say I, do, I want to flag or bring to the forefront of your memory the last sign that we talked about was the healing of the man who was born blind. That was in John chapter 9. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem. In chapter 10, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He happens to be there for Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is a military, it's a, it's a spiritual, but it's also a military uh, a time of celebration. It harkens back to when John Maccabeus um, was able to bring his band of rebels into Jerusalem and throw out the Greeks who were currently ruling in Jerusalem. And so during this time of Hanukkah, Jesus, so it's this time of remembering deliverance and restoration of God's people in the city of Jerusalem. And during this time, Jesus is interacting with the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem. And he keeps saying, the signs I'm doing is pointing to who I am. And then he makes this comment, I and the Father are one. And this sets an explosion in the city of Jerusalem where people thought of that statement as a blasphemous statement. And they pick up stones and they want to kill Jesus. And Jesus has to leave Jerusalem. And he leaves and he goes down the Judean wilderness out to the east into the Rift Valley and he crosses the Jordan River and he stays there. So this is this... Um, it's kind of this climatic experience that we're getting to in the book of John, where there's a lot of people who are riled up in the city of Jerusalem, and people know who Jesus is, and Jesus knows what his mission is. And all of that is going to sit as our kind of emotional context for this particular scripture. So now we're going to meet Lazarus of Beth Bethany. Now Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, these siblings, we tend to think Martha is probably the oldest. Luke tells us that Jesus is often in Martha's house, and so it seems maybe she is the oldest one, and it seems to be her household. But Jesus is particularly fond of these siblings, and we find Jesus often staying with them whenever he's in the Jerusalem area. And they each have their own personalities here. And Martha, in particular, which we'll see later, tends to be the theologian of the siblings. Um, but Martha and Mary both are pointed to, especially in the Gospel of Luke, as being these great disciples of Jesus. And so with a family that he desperately loves, one of them, Lazarus, falls ill. And so the two sisters are going to send message to Jesus. And the message they send is, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And there's no, so therefore, please do this. And it's hard to know how to read it. You know, I don't think they're being passive aggressive. I think they're just letting him know. 
the one that you love is sick. Some of the previous signs we've seen Jesus heals at a distance. So he doesn't even have to go and visit him personally in order to heal him. They're just letting him know. Jesus, the one that you desperately love is ill. And Jesus, when he heard it, and this is one of the questions I have is, did he send a response back to the sisters? Or did the messenger just hang out there kind of tick-tock, Jesus? We're on a timeline here. We don't know. But Jesus says the illness will not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And this particular statement is one I think that we should just come back to a little bit later. Because what does it mean? How exactly is this situation and this sign going to glorify God? And how is the Son of God going to be glorified in what he's doing? So we'll come back there. But then we have that Jesus waits for two more additional days. What is he doing in these silent days in the way that John is telling the story? We don't know. We find through the other Gospels, not so much in John, but in all the other Gospels, we find Jesus often withdrawing and praying. He's very conscientiously praying and following God's timeline for everything that Jesus does so that it reflects back and gives glory to God. So maybe he's taking this time and he's praying. But we see that when the time is right, Jesus gathers the disciples and says, and now we go. And in the next part of the conversation, we have these two parallel stories that are happening, and they're both true. It's just different people are focusing on different things. The disciples are looking at Jesus and saying, if we go back to Bethany, which is less than two miles, it's about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem, you know, the powder keg, if we go to Bethany right now, we're probably going to die. And you hear that even in Thomas's reaction of, okay, like, here we go. Now, let's just go. With, we're in it for the long haul. We're going with Jesus and we're all going to die, right? So we trust him enough to do something as foolish as heading back into the area of Jerusalem. So there's that part. But then there's this other part where Jesus, again, is going to focus on light, and light, which is such an important theme in this Gospel of John, where John said Jesus is the light of the world, that he has come to tabernacle or to dwell. And in all the signs we've been seeing, who is it that sees and perceives Jesus as light? That was a huge part of the conversation in the last sign that was given of the man who was born blind when he sees it was this whole conversation of who is seeing and perceiving who Jesus is. And so Jesus is going, yeah, I get what's happening on the surface. I get the powder keg that is Jerusalem. I understand those things. But I also know that this is the time. And I am going to bring glory to my Father. And those who see me and know me as I am will trust and go where I go. And so the collection go up to Jerusalem. 
Now, going from the other side of the Jordan River up to Bethany is a full day's walk. It is a very steep hill. So not so bad when you're coming down from Jerusalem or Bethany down to the Jordan. But when you have to turn around and make the return trip, it is arduous. And it's not a safe road. It's the road that the Good Samaritan story is depicted as being on this particular road. So it is a full day when Jesus says, okay, let's go. They have to pass through the heat of the wilderness and get up to Bethany. So then it is curious when we get to verse 17. It says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been dead and in the tomb four days. And in fact, four days is repeated twice in this story. And every time there's phrases and details that are repeated, you should go, why? Why four days? And then, you know those SAT questions that are like, if the train leaves the station and in five hours it passes through the tunnel, what time, you know, those things. You can kind of do that with this particular passage. Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus. It's going to take that messenger a full day to get down to the Jordan to find Jesus and give him the message. Jesus waits two days, and it's going to take Jesus a full day to get up to Bethany for any of that activity and the action in this story to take place. But when he arrives, Lazarus has already been dead four days. This means Lazarus died when the messenger was on the way to see Jesus. He had already died. And then let's pause and let's think about that too. We're, we're going to think about that also. Why do we need it repeated again that it is four days? And we're going to come back to that. Martha, I'm a huge fan of this theologian who is Martha. She is extremely well-educated. Um, and we see it in the way that she holds discourse with Jesus. And when she comes out... She comes out and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In fact, we get three different scenarios of people saying this to Jesus in one way or the other, because Mary is going to come out and say the exact same thing. If only you had been here. And then the crowds of people standing in front of the tomb, they don't say if only, but they say, if he can heal people born blind, couldn't he have done something if only he had been here? It's one of these really moving times in the story, I think, because we see all these people bringing their intimate grief and hurt. We all have if onlys in our life. If only I had chosen a different career. If only I had gone to a different school. If only I hadn't. If only I had. Right? We have these if-onlys where we look back and wonder, where else could things have gone? And Martha's if-only is, my grief wouldn't be here if only you had been here instead. But Jesus is engaging her in this and says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. 
The Jews during this time, in fact, this, um, they had been developing and talking about resurrection. The Sadducees, those connected specifically to the temple, did not believe in a resurrection. However, many other of the Jews did. When they read through their scripture, and we think of places like Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66 that promise a new heaven and a new earth, when something that looks an awful lot like where we are now becomes even more beautiful. And it's just that the pain and the grief is abolished. That idea of, of what is to come, or Ezekiel 37, where bones that are very, very dry, right? They're not just a little dry. It's not a new death. It's not a new skeleton. It's an old skeleton or multiple skeletons in a valley cooking under Middle Eastern sun and very, 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 very not alive. And to have this understanding that the God of creation who breathed life into creation to animate life, to animate creation, is the one who can then breathe on dry, dry, dry bones and reanimate them. And that is this sign of resurrection. And we see Martha saying, I believe in that kind of resurrection. And I know Lazarus is going to experience that kind of resurrection. And Jesus, in one of his great I am statements that John repeats throughout his whole gospel, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So it's not resurrection as doctrine that you believe in. He's going, I personally am that resurrection. It's a personhood, and it's in the personhood of who Jesus is. And then he goes on, and sometimes, like the first few times when I read this, I read it fairly abstractly, like kind of one of the, the weird things Jesus says that's just a little bit harder than it really should be to communicate clearly. But then I thought, I don't, if you're actually Martha standing right in front of him in this context, maybe he is communicating quite clearly. Because he says, those who believe in me, even though they die, insert like Lazarus, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me, like you, Martha, will never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. This is a grand and beautiful statement of trust and faith. It is the exact same statement that Peter makes standing in Caesarea Philippi when he says, I know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I just wonder if she's going to turn and she goes and she fetches Mary so that Mary can interact with Jesus. And I just wonder if part of what Jesus is doing is this invitation for her to take this hope that she has in the future, right? She's been looking towards the resurrection that is yet to come and is saying, take that hope that you have extended way out into the future and pull it into the present and associate it with me right now. I am that resurrection. 
How is life different for you if you believe the resurrection is in the here and now? And who knows what Mary is thinking as she heads back, but wouldn't it be delightful if she took all of her if-onlys and turned it to if Jesus? So no longer if only you had been here, but if Jesus is the Messiah, then what? If Jesus is the Son of God, then what? And if Jesus is the resurrection and is here right now, then what? But we're left in suspense. And we head over to Mary, who comes out to meet Jesus in the same place. And this is really interesting because when Jesus sees her and she comes of the people who are sitting Shiva with them, the, um, the seven days of mourning, right? They're halfway through the seven days of mourning. When all those people see Mary leave, they go out with her. So it's a, an emotional crowd who's here. And in verse 33, we see that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Why do we need two different phrases here? It's almost a repeat of the same idea. And so in asking that question, it's good to go and look. What do the words actually mean? And there's lots of different translations and you'll hear a different um, kind of tenor of the words in all these different translations. But disturbed in spirit, this is more of an outrage idea. This is more than he is feeling empathy because people around him are sad. It is, he feels indignant and he's outraged. And he is deeply moved, has this agitation, like agitating waters or like this anxiety of emotion. It's that kind of feeling which means Jesus isn't just sad that someone that he loves is grieving, but he's looking at the face of death and is going, this is all that is broken and death was never written into the original plan of creation. There's an agitation of everything that is broken and everything that is wrong and everything that we grieve in the world. And he is moved in that way. And it's such a beautiful moment, I think, in John. Because we're always saying, like, we kind of have these concepts sometimes of the God who is the creator God as being out there. It's because I have heels on today. <laughs> being out there, out removed not really in touch, like we worship and we fear him, but, but what does that mean? And here we get the picture of this God who takes on human flesh and fully steps into the present, into that moment. And we see the emotion of Jesus, grieved at what we're grieved at, disturbed by what we're disturbed at. And then he says, where, uh, let's see, could not he, oh, this is when the crowd says, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept him from dying? And Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, again, greatly indignant, goes to the tomb. And then we get this comment where he says, take the stone away. 
Now, this is going to be now a very public thing that Jesus is doing. One, because you don't just casually remove a stone in front of these kinds of tombs. This is really, really heavy, massive blocks of stone, Cenomanian stone to be precise, for no one in this room who cares, <laughs> except maybe Dave. <laughs> So it is super, super heavy. So it takes multiple people. They're going to have to remove this. We have the sisters who are grieving. We have the crowds who are with them. So this is now a very public thing. And we have that comment once again, and it's Martha this time who's like, are you sure? He's been there for four days. It's going to stink as soon as you open up that tomb. So why do we need to know, again, four days? Well, it's interesting. If we kind of read through some Jewish writings, most of the writings are, well, they're actually written down several years after this event happens. But there seems to be this growing doctrine about the soul of people, like what happens to the soul when you die. And there's this idea circulating that the soul hovers around the body as the soul finds its way into the afterlife. And people would very attentively watch over the body just to, to hold the person in community while the soul is figuring things out. We also have a couple super, super random stories that are significantly later of people without our medical technology who sort of died or people around them thought they had died and they put them into a cave, but the person wasn't actually dead. And so they started this tradition of going to the tomb for three days and like, are you there? Are you still dead? Are you not like make a sound if you need us to let you out kind of thing. So this detail of four days is important because it means that Lazarus is dead, but he's dead, dead. Like he's really, really dead. And the two days that Jesus waited so that the time was right is so that he could go stand in front of this tomb with Lazarus who is dead, dead, and everyone knows how dead he truly is. So that when Jesus calls him to life, everyone knows where the power truly is. And they can't just write it off as, oh, maybe we made a mistake. So Jesus then is going to point back to the Father. When he talks to Mary and he says, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And then in this beautiful moment, when Jesus is standing there and he recognizes his father has already heard him. And I, I have so many questions around this part. Like, does he know that Lazarus is already alive because there is no stench? Is he just confident in the father? He knows he's been praying those two days. God has listened to Jesus and Jesus is fully confident of the fact. And so he stands in front of the tomb and he yells out, cries out in loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And in this moment, we have the word of Jesus and the depth of death in this mortal combat. And Jesus wins. 
And there is something dramatic and beautiful about this moment. And it's not, that's not just the end. I have lots of questions about this last part too, because Lazarus comes out and his hands and feet are bound with strips of cloth and his face is wrapped. That had to be just weird. Not only to witness, but weird for Lazarus. It's weird for everyone who is there. And Jesus, like he does in every single sign that happens in the book of John, Jesus invites the surrounding people to participate in his work. So in this case, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, came, they saw, they trusted Jesus, they believed, and they go back to Jerusalem to let people know. And for John, this is what is going to cause the death of Jesus. And for John, as we have looked at each of these signs, John slows down dramatically starting in chapter 12. And now we're just going to walk through the Passover feast and the last week. And we're invited to look with attentive eyes to really see who Jesus is. And we're invited to ask the same questions. Um, I mean, I think maybe for me, I've been thinking about this this week, that part of the invitation is to enter into the hope of Martha, turning if-onlys into if-Jesus, if Jesus is the resurrection, right? What does that mean? To look at the kingdom of God, the fact that John has been painting Jesus as the poor celebrate, the sick are healed, and death is turned into merely sleep. Jesus, in the coming chapters of John, is going to be the answer for his own outrage of all that is broken in the world. And it's with Jesus and then his death and his resurrection into the fullness of life that is the thing that abolishes death. And so what is it about the truth of that passage, the truth of the story that John is painting for us that then changes the way that we live in the present, that we live here as resurrection? Because our thriving community, the church community, for all who are gathering in churches all around the world, yesterday, today, on these days, the vitality, this resurrection power of the church, of God, exemplified through the church, is not based on what happens up here in front of the pews, even though I adore our musicians. I think they are some of the best. And it's not what I do. It's not anything up here. It's all y'all, right? All of us who are connected as a body. It's how we live once we exit through these doors. Are we living life convinced that if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that should change everything in the days that are to come after what we do just here. And I think there's this really beautiful invitation to, to step in and to help wherever it is that Jesus is working. 
And this is part of the things as we've been encouraging people to tell stories of new life and stories of what's going on in the city. There is an invitation to help out where Jesus is working. Be like these people in this story who Jesus invites into this restoration of life. And so I just would like to invite all of us to be thinking on these terms, thinking of if only, if Jesus, not if only, if Jesus, then how does my life change? How do I have the hope to go, these dry, dry, very dead bones can be breathed on and will come to life? And who do I need to tell that really good news to? Will you pray with me? Holy Father, Creator God, Jesus, resurrection, life, the gardener of a new garden that explodes in color. As we study and look and remind ourselves just as a community of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, maybe may we be reminded once more, maybe afresh, of the hope that we have because of who you are, because your kingdom is one in which all are welcome, where beauty is enhanced, where we stand together in grief, but we know that death is not the final answer, that you bring life and that you are that life. And so Jesus, I just pray in the weeks ahead, may we look up and look around and see your life-giving power at work throughout the city of Philadelphia or wherever we find ourselves. And may we, in small or in big ways, just participate in the work that you are doing. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.